0: Evidence and Answers. Modern science assumes that all things that exist are the result of natural causes that do not require an intelligent creator. However, is this really the best way to do science? Should we rule out intelligent design before examining the evidence? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics. The Defense of the Christian Faith. Today's message comes from this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme was Science and Christianity, Enemies or Allies. And one of our featured speakers was Dr. Paul Nelson, who spoke on the topic, Setting Science Free from Materialism. Let's join Paul Nelson now as he explains the proper approach to science and why science should not be so opposed to the idea of an intelligent creator.
1: My talk tonight is gonna have the form of a conversation between you, the believer, who believes in God's creation or intelligent design, and the skeptic. Now the skeptic, and I interact with skeptics all the time, will often say to me, Paul, intelligent design is just a relabeling of an old idea to improve its marketability. So they say, well look, I know what this is, I've seen that can in the store for a long time. And all you've done is swap the label. used to be called creationism, now you call it intelligent design, but it's the same soup in the can all the time. Nobody is fooled. Because you, you know, take that can home and pop it open and it's just creationism, it's the same old product. Nobody is fooled. Now, that's wrong. That's actually not true. Intelligent design, that is inferring from patterns in nature to an intelligent cause, a cause with a mind, in some sense like your own, that's something that every human being does, every day. And they do it whatever else they believe about the world. So you could be a Buddhist, you could be an agnostic, you could be an atheist. And certain patterns that you see in the world tell you that pattern had an intelligent cause. It wasn't a strictly physical cause, it was a cause with a mind. So the first point in my talk tonight about setting science free from materialism is to realize that when you're interacting with skeptics, people who don't accept the Bible or may not even believe that God exists, whether they accept the Bible or not, recognize that they are built, they're put together to detect design, and that you can use that interacting with them to get them to bump out of the ruts that they're in and think about the world in a different way. So I want to show you how this works in action. Well, you look at some real-life examples, first taken not from biology, but from just everyday life, so that you can see how you use and how other people use this kind of reasoning. So here's the first example. This is a real-life story. It's actually rather tragic. This scientist was on his way to a Nobel Prize in physics. He was a young physicist working at Bell Labs. He had a string of high-profile papers in leading journals that were front-page news because they were so significant. If he had really made the discoveries that I'm going to describe, they would have been worth billions of dollars to technology companies. So there was a lot of attention to them. The problem was he had these high-profile papers, but no one could replicate his results. You know, if I claim to make a discovery of some new effect in nature, the rules of science tell us that I should be able to give you the recipe In other words, I say, you set up your experiment this way, and if you do everything right, you will see the same result. Because after all, it's coming from nature. In fact, we can personify her. Mother nature provides the effect. I don't have to be there. The problem was, in the case of this guy's papers, he had to be there to get the result. Young German physicist. Actually, this never happened. This is an article from the New York Times. But the university in Germany that gave him his PhD was so embarrassed. By what he did, they tried to take it away. And he fought them in court and was able to hang on to his PhD. So this headline's a little misleading. But you can see that the crime he committed against science was so severe that the University of Konstanz in Germany tried to withdraw his PhD. All right, what happened? Well, Bell Labs was concerned that no one could duplicate his work. No one could replicate these amazing results that he was getting. So they formed a committee, and they started to look at all of his publications sort of side by side, taking them from this journal and that journal and comparing them to each other. And as soon as they did, they noticed something very strange. You can see from the headline of this article, similar graphs raise suspicions. All right, here's what they found. They found a lot of other stuff too, but I'll give you just one example. And by the way, you can download the report from this committee. It's freely available on the web. It's like almost 300 pages. And it's a fascinating example of design reasoning in action. How did they catch him? Well, here is a figure, or two figures, that the New York Times has reproduced from two experiments that he did. Okay, this one was on a light-emitting transistor. This, on, this one was on a different kind of transistor. They're published in different journals at different times. Notice that these curves and these diagrams are almost identical. In one case, there's an extra line that's not present in the other figure in this one right here, it's not present in that one, but the rest of these curves are identical, right down to the noise. Okay, so what the New York Times has done is they've taken a portion of this curve and a portion of this curve here, and they've blown them up so you can see that bumpy line there, and that bumpy line there. You can superimpose those lines on top of each other. That can't happen naturally. Think about it this way, I give you a box with 50 dice Okay, there's six-sided little cubes, you know what dice are, a box with 50 dice, and you shake the box and dump it out, and then you count all the faces that are up, and you score those. Is it a one? Is it a six? Is it a three? And so forth. And you get a string of numbers, 50 numbers in a row, and that particular event is exceedingly improbable. It's so improbable, in fact, that you could wait really the whole lifetime of the universe shaking dice and nobody else would ever get those same 50 numbers in a row. But let's suppose we do that, all right? I give you the box with the dice, you shake it and dump it out, you count the faces and write them down. Then I give those same dice in that same box to somebody else, and they shake it and dump it out, and they get the same 50 numbers. All of us in this room know that if that happened, we know that that was rigged dice, normal dice, don't behave that way. So if you did see that, if you did see that duplicated pattern, you would say, you set this up. You've got magnets in there, or these dice are weighted in some way. In some way, Paul, you rigged this to get that result because dice normally don't behave that way. Well, we have the same pattern here. These lines are caused by the machines that he's using, their imperfections, their noise, their, their randomness. When the committee at Bell Labs saw that match, his career as a physicist was over, because they said the only way that that match can exist is if he copied one of these figures from the other. He didn't actually do the experiments. It was over. So what they're doing is saying, here's a real pattern in nature. We saw it in his publications. We run through all the possible physical causes for it, and there aren't any. The only way that can exist that that reproduction of that random pattern can exist is because he faked the results by his deliberate intent. So it was over. They had to withdraw his papers. Now, that kind of reasoning is using intelligence. Now, as I said it in South Shore this morning, it may be a bit of a misnomer to use the adjective intelligent for what this guy did, <laughs> because he ruined his career, right? He faked the results. You don't do that in science. You don't do that in ordinary life. But he used his mind to generate things in nature that wouldn't exist if he hadn't done it. So we use this notion of intelligence all the time to explain. I'll give you another everyday example. I hope this never happens to you. A couple of years ago, I was attending a lecture at the University of Chicago given by a friend of mine. And I parked on a part of the campus that I thought was safe. Usually it was. Parked my Honda Odyssey there, went to hear the lecture. I came out afterwards. And it was a very cold March day in Chicago. You never get days like that here in Hawaii. It was bitterly cold. And I'm walking up, and I see a lot of glass on the ground by my car. So I look, and the passenger side front window is completely gone. It's been totally demolished. So I look inside, and what's there is the McDonald's bag and the Atlas for Chicago and a bunch of old pieces of paper and my daughter's hairbrush. All the junk is there. What's not there is my Garmin GPS unit, the stand for the Garmin, the cord, and the carrying case. Very thorough person. Okay, they took everything related to that Garmin. Now, from that pattern, what I just described to you, what are you going to do? What you're not going to do is sit down on the curb and start running through all the possible natural causes that get only the valuable objects out of a car you 're going to dial nine one one which if you do that in Chicago, you get a recording <laughs> it 's very discouraging <laughs> you know I mean I had to have to call to make the claim for my insurance company, but I never actually spoke to a cop or anybody about what happened. That pattern will generate the same inference for any human being who 's properly put together doesn 't matter if you 're an atheist or an agnostic or what, whatever you believe you see that and you say. It's not a natural cause. There's an intelligence involved. Well, we use that all the time. And then one of the questions tonight in my conversation with the skeptic is going to be: What are my limits on using that kind of reasoning? Okay, so we're operating with a basic distinction here. On the top, we have events caused by intelligence. You know, someone breaking into, my <laughs> getting desperate. Someone breaking into my car. You write a poem. That that beautiful. Okay, by the end of the evening, my head's going to be encased in a cardboard box, you know. (laughs) You have events caused by intelligence, like the beautiful music we heard earlier. Or you have events caused by physics, where there isn't a mind involved. And in the lower case, we get rid of the agent, and you've got impersonal physical forces acting. There's no mind involved. I'll give you another example from my own life, to sort of bring the point home. Once a year, I go for my annual checkup. And I know that every year, my doctor, who's seen me for almost 20 years now, same guy, is going to scold me for being overweight. I mean, really scold me. Not just like, you need, you need to lose some weight, Paul. He's like, you're in bad shape, and you need to come to grips with that. It's like an altar call, you know, at a church. You know, you've got to deal with this. So I dread, I mean, I love the guy. He's a great doctor, but I dread being scolded. So a few years ago, I'm sitting in my waiting room of my doctor's building, reading People magazine, trying to distract myself, and a nurse comes running in from the back of the medical office and she said, who has the silver Nissan in the back parking lot? Well I had the silver Nissan in the back parking lot, so I run out there and my beautiful little two-door coupe is rolling steadily down the hill towards the back wall of that building. What's going on? What's going on is an object with mass, like this, right? Laser pointer got some mass, in a gravitational field, if it's free to move, will move towards the center of that field with a probability approaching one. So I used to do this in lectures. I'd let this go and try to catch it, and one year I didn't, and I cost, it was like a $60 laser pointer down the train, so we know what's gonna happen if I let that laser pointer go. That's a physical regularity. And these things, these laws that we describe mathematically in physics and chemistry and so forth, they're very powerful. In fact, we can exploit them to do things for us, like run our cars. But they don't have minds. They're not capable of writing poetry, for instance. So this distinction between what a mind can do and what an undirected physical cause can do is very deep in human understanding. It goes back well before Christianity. You can find Greek philosophers arguing about it. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Greek philosophers were arguing, is the world better explained by a mind or by physics? So it doesn't belong to our particular religious viewpoint. It actually belongs to all of humanity. And so I say to the skeptic, intelligent design is just using this notion of mind to understand the world. It's not that spooky. But, he says, I'm not persuaded. I'm not persuaded, Paul. So I say, all right, let's play a game show. Let's go to a Hollywood set and a game show, and behind this door is a puzzle, right? Behind this door is a puzzle, and we want to understand how it came to be. We want to look at the cause that brought that effect into existence. And you have two choices. After all, it's a game show, right? Make it interesting. You can have box one, and inside box one are solutions of type X, thousands of them in little envelopes. All right, so you pop the lid on box one, you take out one of these envelopes and open it, and all the solutions are of the same form. I mean, they're different depending on the context, but they all have the same kind of cause involved. All right, so you can have box one, or you can have box two. Now, the great thing about box two is if there is a solution in box one, a type X solution, you also get it in box two. So any explanation that's up here, you're gonna get in box two, plus you get the type Y solutions. Now, is there anybody in this room who would take box one over box two, just from the way I've described it so far? No, you're gonna take box two every time because you've got more horsepower. You've got more options here. You're not losing anything. In fact, you're gaining these kinds of answers, which you may need depending on what the puzzle is behind that door. So just as I've described it, the rational thing to do is to say, I'll take that box because it's got more options. All right, so let's look at some real life puzzles. Anybody recognize that? Who said quartz? Have you studied mineralogy? How did you know that, just like that? Yeah, that's quartz. It's beautiful crystal. It has a particular hexagonal prism geometry. The chemical formula is SiO2. You can grow it. I can give you the recipe for quartz. In fact, watch manufacturers grow great big vats of quartz crystals because if you put an electrical current through quartz, it oscillates with a very high frequency that you can step down and run a watch. Probably some of you are wearing quartz watches uh, this evening. Now, there's our puzzle, and we say, you know what? Physics can handle it. Let's say these are the physics based explanations here, these type X explanations. Physics can handle it, so our boxes are equivalent at this point. We're not, you know, Box 2 is not going to win in that case, but how about something like this? Okay, if you know what these are, don't say. Let me just see a quick show of hands who thinks that these are natural objects. I see one. All right, it looks like pretty much everybody else thinks they're artificial. They kind of look like beautiful little glassy buttons, don't they? Like someone might have turned them on a lathe. I mean, they have this wonderful beveled edge here, this symmetry. If I found one of those in a field, just walking along and picked it up, I'd say, who made this? I mean, it looks like a little glass button. In fact, these are called tektites, and the current best explanation for their origin is they're caused naturally by a meteoritic impact. So this picture here shows a meteorite colliding with the Earth's surface, and it creates this intensely hot molten soup, some of which splashes out high up into the air as a molten glass sphere. Okay, now, as that molten sphere is arcing through the air, it begins to cool, and as it's falling, the air pushes up against the bottom, and you get that nice beveled edge forming. So that when it hits the ground and has cooled off, you get this little funny button shape. Right? You find these in Australia, near meteoritic impact sites. Okay, suppose we find these, and we don't know this physical story that was worked out by research we might have a debate about whether they were natural or artificial. In fact, when you look at the geological literature in the 19th century, when they were discovered, there was a debate for many decades, are tektites caused by intelligence or are they caused by physics? Right now, the current best explanation is they're caused by physics, but you can't even have that debate if you don't have intelligence as a live possibility in your toolkit. So if we go back here and put that in, now we have a real puzzle. Who recognizes what that is? Anybody study anthropology, physical anthropology? I see a hand here. Exactly right. It's a hand axe made from flint. And if you saw this from the edge, it would have this beautiful beveled shape and you would fit very comfortably balanced in your hand and you could use it to cut hide or to cut bone or muscle. It's a stone age tool. Now, if I were out walking in a field, I'm not trained in paleoanthropology. I don't recognize artifacts readily. But someone who is might grab me by the arm and say, you know what, you just stepped over something that's very valuable. That's a Stone Age hand axe. And now I'm going to put it in my collection because you walked right by. The point is, this object would not exist in nature without intelligence. So in this case, science needs that notion of a mind to understand something that we would discover in a field. And physics won't do it. Physics won't do it for you. And in a case like this, it's obvious. Pigment depicting a beautiful Italian woman of the Renaissance will never arrange itself on board. You need the genius of Leonardo to do that. So here, physics is going to lose without really any argument at all. We need intelligence to understand what it is that human beings make. So here's our toolkit. And this is what I would advocate for any scientist. And I would say, you know what? I don't care what else you believe about the world. You need to let the evidence of the world surprise you. You need to have this notion of intelligence in your explanatory toolkit because, after all, there may be things in the world that require it. And my skeptic says, all right, all right, all right. All right, Paul. Okay. Nobody doubts these examples. They all involve human intelligence. All right. So let's turn up the philosophical temperature. Let's grab that temperature knob on the philosophical oven and crank it around to broil. This is Jill Tarter, plus two other people whose names I don't know, but I want you to focus on this woman here in the foreground. At the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico, I don't know if you, any of you have ever been there, but there's a very large radio telescope built into a natural depression in the mountains in Puerto Rico. And she's in the computer room and it's 3 a.m. <laughs> okay, so this is my attitude. <laughs> of being up at 3 a.m. I would have been asleep for about five hours at that point. What is she and these other scientists, what are they doing? They're testing software. They're testing software that does pattern detection and it's interesting here, she's a radio astronomer, she's actually the real-life model for the Jodie Foster character in the movie Contact. She says in the caption, you can't read it but I'll tell you, she says, it would be nice if they sent something obvious like the digits of pi. Okay? So, why would pi be obvious? You know what pi is if you've had high school geometry or even middle school geometry. It's the ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter. They're the first 500 digits. You know, there are web pages where you can go and put in your phone number, and it will tell you where your phone number is in the decimal expansion of pi. But here's what you can't do, at least not yet. You can't put your phone number plus your area code. So your phone number is seven digits long, and it's in there. I used to know where mine was, it's like about 10 million in. But if you put your area code in front, that string of 10 digits is still too long to be captured in Pi. But here's the weird, really spooky thing about Pi. As Pi gets bigger and bigger and bigger, as more and more digits are added as it's expanding, eventually your full, 10-digit number will be there, plus your birthday. You'll be able to put your birthday next to your phone number, and that string will be in there. In fact, lines of Shakespeare will be in there. It's a very weird number. As it gets bigger and bigger, more patterns pop up in Pi. In any case, you would not need to see very much of this coming in in a radio telescope, and you could open the champagne. It doesn't matter who sent it. And you know what, we'll never get out there to meet them because it takes so long to travel through space that we'll never get there to meet them. But if you saw that coming in on a radio telescope, you could be very excited because mathematical objects like pi are produced by minds, not by natural causes. Of course, they would also be able to have to manipulate the electromagnetic spectrum to produce a powerful signal. But Jill Tarter, who actually is an atheist in personal life, Her whole research program depends on being able to say, if I see something like this coming in, in a radio telescope, I know that there's a mind like mine, in some sense like mine, out there elsewhere in the universe. So if we put pi in there, at least part of it, Jill Tartar says, I can rule out physics. Mathematical objects like prime numbers, in the movie Contact, it's a series of prime numbers. Those are produced by intellect, not by physics. All right, so you might say, well, you know what, I'm still, the skeptic says, you know what, I I can still bend enough to allow for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But what you're talking about, Paul, is not pi coming in a radio telescope. What you're talking about is biology. You're saying that the DNA in living things indicates an intelligent cause, and that really pushes my envelope. So they'll say, I can handle Jill Tartar, I can handle Stonehenge, I can handle insurance fraud, I can handle all the examples you give me because they only implicate you know, causes like us, either members of our species Homo sapiens or an alien somewhere in, in the universe. But they say, I can't handle that. Isn't that gorgeous? That is a multi-protein complex called the chaperone that is a nursery for baby proteins. In this central chamber here, this very large complex allows newly formed proteins to fold properly so they'll function once they're released into the cell. I always thought this would make a nice stained glass window. You know, after all, God made it. It's gorgeous, you know. That's a protein that would never form on the early earth from its pieces. And I would say that exists because of intelligent design. Or the panda. Or Richard Dawkins. These are biological objects. And if they had an intelligent cause, it was certainly not an alien. It was probably something very much like God himself. So at this point, the skeptic says, you know what, you've pushed me too far. You've pushed me too far. I can accept design here, but these objects, if they had a designer, now you're violating the rules of science. All right. Let's think about those rules, so-called rules and what limits they may put on our freedom as human beings to get to the truth.
0: This concludes part one of Dr. Paul Nelson's message, Setting Science Free from Materialism. If you would like to hear this study in its entirety, along with all the seminars from this past year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by this show, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Evidence and Answers radio show is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.